It is the state of unconditional love which only the divine can give. And yes, everything on earth, every relationship should ideally recreate some image of that relationship which the divine has with this creation. So, if we can create that, it would be a very beautiful uh, thing to happen. And possibly only a mother-child relationship, this is possible. That there can be an unconditional love where there is giving, giving, giving at all levels, expecting nothing in return. That's how one has to understand it. And not the other way that it means we don't have to do anything and you know we remain complacent. It is from her side a state of unconditional love. It has a great power, it has a great transforming power. But in attempting to practice the ideal, you'll find yourself always expecting, and that's all right. Don't get agitated. (laughs) (laughs) It's human, it's normal. Yes, please. Yeah, earlier, um, late this afternoon, you, you were making a, um, a statement about dealing with adverse forces, and that made the statement that ultimately it's undivine, and uh, it always comes out for good, and we all agree with that. But in a short-term basis, you know, many people have haven't been asked to leave different groups because of problems or direct action have, have, has to have been taken to stop something that's actively occurring. Uh, there's a distinction between people and adverse forces. Uh, as far as it comes to adverse forces, while what we discussed earlier was that they serve a purpose, that through it all we come out stronger, but we come out stronger precisely because we oppose the adverse forces and overcome them. So, in response to the adverse forces, you have to do what has to be done to defeat them and to push forward the evolutionary agenda. This is different from handling people where people might be inspired by adverse forces but they may not be aware of it. And then you have to take into account the degree of the person's ignorance and susceptibility to that adverse suggestion, his ability or attempt to overcome that influence and his intention to grow free from it and based on that full assessment one has to find the right relation with the person. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about constantly, I guess nowadays we try to plan a lot for tomorrow and I always find it difficult to also be present in the present while you're always thinking about tomorrow or maybe five years down the road, ten years down the road. And I know Mother has said some things about you know trying to be aware of both because you have to have direction and uh, uh, you know a path that you want to walk. So how do what what would be a good way to start being aware of both? The best way to open the road to the future is to be the best in the present. 
and what you do in the present will be shaped largely by what is um, your kind of goal that you place before yourself in the future. So in any given situation in the present, you have to act in the present. But what will be the line of action, what will be the kind of response you will give to environmental challenges and everyday life situations will depend on what is your goal in the future. Say for instance that if your goal in the future is to make money, then accordingly when certain things are there, the responses will be like that. But if the goal is let's say self-conquest, the whole response will begin to change. But essentially the response and everything else has to be in the present. To be too anxious and worried about the future is never a very good thing. And fear, anxiety draw the thing close. It's alright to plan, to organize is perfectly fine, but to be too anxious, that's not a very healthy thing. So, I'll also make a distinction between planning for the future and living in the future. If you make the plan and start living in the chickens which have yet to hatch, then you're in trouble. So the principle is to live in the present and from the present you have an outlook to the future based on which you have an outline of a plan, a framework of action which you must have if you are in an activity which requires sequencing of uh, events, chains of dependencies. You have to plan based on the present moment. As the present moves forward a few seconds, hours or days, the plan itself from that new position may need to change and the plan will adapt according to changing situations. But you remain centered in the present, both in your perception of the plan and your action of the plan. We worked on that in detail on the first day. Yeah. So you can start by looking at the four uh, exercises that Sri Aurobindo recommends, uh, four methods by which you can open the mind to the intuition. Start with that and after that I think the rest will follow along the lines which we have already discussed. As a good step, the first two points of those four methods. You both speak a bit on the importance of satsang for us in America. I, I feel it's very important, it's my perception. I feel there is a right way to get the yoga and there is a more complex way to get into the yoga. And it's very important if we can touch the heart and that must open. My limited perception has been that somehow the heart remains closed while a lot of things are going on here. Maybe, I, I don't know, I feel it's very important for this to open if one really wants as a group or as a collectivity to move on to the path of yoga on a royal road, if at all there is a royal road, 
and for things to quicken up and happen rapidly and in the true way. Otherwise, there are risks and dangers of all kinds of things coming in which spoil the work or make it endlessly complicated. If this can open, it would be wonderful. And I feel the work goes much faster. I don't know, Shadhalu can probably add his experience. I'll just make a, a, a response to you, the wording of your question. Satsang as a principle and need is a human need. I'm not sure what difference it makes whether it's in America or not. Everybody on the yogic path needs that satsang. Satsang essentially means being in communion in good company, in this case spiritual. And that's a support which helps everybody. And study circles are very, very useful as a kind of... Uh I feel uh, it's very important if in a city there are some people, they can get together once a week, twice a week, at a fixed time, at a fixed place and read something from Mother Shirobindo. It's a great help uh, rather than just reading individually. One, there is a tendency in individual reading to kind of slacken up and I'll read it whenever I feel like. Very few people can keep the discipline. And second, when collectively we meet, it tends to strengthen the flame of aspiration. So it gives a certain degree of solidity to the whole collective consciousness. So it's very good if people can meet. I have been helped enormously by it. I've seen a lot of people being helped if they have some kind of a collective study. In the worst case, if you cannot go to a center in your home, if other members of your family are... Uh, aligned similarly, sit with them, let that be your center to begin with, but a group still, so that it helps the collective uh, change. And if the whole family begins to respect a particular time, sorry for that, a particular time for concentration and uh, meditation or communion of some kind, find the kind of activity conducive to the family, it will help the whole relationship in the family consciousness to shift a level up. Uh, we are doing it um, from 10 years, we are reading and uh, uh, books and meeting monthly once. Or previously, we used to meet weekly. Now, recently, what we made is from one year, after 9 o'clock, phone contact the children which they are the children, small children. So on education we are reading. And for there is a phone common line is there. You can make that one. Mm. We are reading. We, we have ten families on education we are reading. Skype kind of thing. I think they do in California. The Study circle. Bhutan has spoke about powers acting through Napoleon, Churchill, Hitler. How this is in I mean, looking back in perspective we can say, yes, they must have done something. How do you recognize something like that going on in the present? The same way the principle remains the same. Once you know the characteristic way of these powers, of course not anyone and everyone can say and it can be a very dangerous game. 
but uh, definitely in some instances it can be very obvious where there is a direct opposition to the divine and his work there is no doubt about it or where there is a direct engagement of that kind but uh, otherwise in general where you know there is no such obvious then uh, almost the same way one can feel in any case all these people who are moved by something greater than mere human their results their action uh, they are moved by a tremendous energy which one can see um, for instance john kennedy was one instrument like that so there have been instrument like that even in today's times you can feel it do you think obama is <laughs> I'm not sure. There are some objective criteria by which you can see certain patterns. For example, there are many popular, for want of a better word, gurus. People seen as spiritual leaders of large movements. If you observe the nature of the movement and the essence of the teaching that is emphasized in the movement, straight away you get a certain reference point of what it is. the great movements very wide respected clean but the whole message might be be good do good feel good and it stops there and there's obviously nothing spiritual in the inspiration there a spiritual inspiration would always have a godward turn so you can say this is a mental or a vital again you assess from the forms in which their priority is centered Uh, kind of influence generally a strong dramatic large movement comes from a certain higher vital plane and good the emphasis on the good would represent a positive vital being a benevolent being supporting that whole thing uh, so you have some objective criteria of that kind just by seeing the overall character of the movement and uh, there is another which is uh, which goes deeper which is a sensitivity which you will feel from deep inside in the influence of the psychic where on meeting a person and even if it is a famous person you will feel something comfort discomfort whatever form it takes or when you look at a picture or a name or a particular event you have a certain feel which comes there now the psychic feel does not have the clarity and revelatory character of the intuition it has a feel of comfort or discomfort right wrong distinguishing truth from confusion and it will pick out where it's confusion where it's truth that's all and it stops there whereas if you also develop the intuitive perception then as the mind dwells on it there's a kind of a flash and there's an insight which pops in and you know something which is more than the information given to you and as you refine and develop the intuition it becomes more stable and reliable you will be, find that it it is quite accurate ultimately all true knowledge will come from the psychic opening and the intuitive development intellect cannot give you true knowledge the quieter the mind the less judgmental it is the less preferences in which it is locked the less preconceived ideas and opinions the more the intuition will reveal the truth and the essence of things so that's the whole idea of being as i was saying non judgmental it's not about not knowing the difference between things but the less judgmental we are the quieter our mind becomes the less the preferences fixed ideas opinions 
including the collective suggestions. For instance, as you said, in the case of X, everybody is on a wave and a high. Now, stay still. Don't be carried by that wave. Because what happens? Many times waves are created by pure vital forces. One of the signs that Shirobindo said about the coming of the new age was that rise up of uh, men who wield a great vital influence over masses of humanity. So stand back from that wave, number one. And just observe, just let it reflect on something deeper. For instance, if you are meeting a person for the first time, if you want to know about a person, first time, second time, any time, so one way is that, you know, you start analyzing that, you know, even before the person has walked into the room, we have preconceived ideas, where he is coming from, what is his uh, nationality, what is his this, all these things. Then we see the dress and we already form a judgment and opinion. Then the way he speaks, if he speaks good English, for instance, we automatically believe that he must be, you know, very learned. If he comes, for instance, from a Harvard University, we immediately believe, this is all mindset that he must be an expert, if he has written six books, we begin to believe that he must be a very brilliant scholar. None of this is true. You have to make your mind absolutely quiet and blank and let the even go past the words and the form. I'm telling you as a psychiatrist, honestly it works. Stay still. Person is sitting in front of you, he's speaking, don't pay attention to all the content of the speech and analyze it. You remain quiet as a witness. Go past the words, go past the person. That person and the words, the form and the word will become just a medium to lead you to his inner being. Mind you, it's very dangerous practice. I am not recommending this to be done. It's very dangerous because you may just identify with the person inner being and sometimes the physical maladies of the person can get on to you. I am telling you things which are real, not just... One can just hold a person's pulse and know exactly what is happening inside. It's very dangerous practice. But, if, since you have asked for a way, I am telling you... <laughs> it is safer, like he said, if you see a picture. Don't go immediately, you know, there are already preconceived notions which are there. Don't have any preconceived notions. The less judgmental you are, the quieter you are, the less your fixed ideas, opinions, the more the intuition will reveal. There is a second way of doing it, which is looks like almost the reverse, but uh, it also works well. Supposing you want to know about Mr. X, you said about the president, any country or anything, if, if you really, I mean, of course, all these things have to be developed. Then, if the faculty of concentration has developed already, then you concentrate with this aspiration, just this aspiration to receive knowledge from above. And the whole thing can be well revealed to you. What exactly he represents, what is he here for, what kind of change he is going to bring or not bring. The knowledge can reveal itself in the form of vision, it can be a revelation, it can uh, pop in as an intuitive perception. All these are facts of inner life. Again, warning, dangerous material, don't handle, handle with great care. 
and never speak about these things just like that even if you come to know because these things develop as a gift of the divine they should be used in the service of the divine these are actual faculties which develop the faculties to know about human beings their true nature what is in their depths never use it or misuse it for egoistic purposes use it for the divine work like all faculties that develop if at all necessary just to, to add to that as a reference the moment you start leaning into feeling that person even before you get to the dark and dangerous part you'll have a sense of it and if you sense it is not comfortable you back off and you know already you don't need to go deeper into it <coughs> the other thing you also you can keep in mind when you're in the presence of a person particularly for assessing uh, at that moment you're overwhelmed you may not be conscious of it but there's always an influence wait to go away and after two or three days once things settle then you review the nature of the interaction i have had these kinds of experiences where while sitting with the person i said wow this is fantastic wonderful and then i came away a few hours later and i looked back and i said there was nothing there which had any elevating influence there was nothing stated which had any insight or uh, depth of perception but it was dramatically present and i got carried away by the drama at that moment going away when the vital influence settles uh, things become quite clear yeah, that happens when there is a strong vital charm which certain people exude but another thing about influence is that you can study your own being and how the influences if one looks at oneself certain persons evoke certain responses inside but there's a little more difficult because one has to learn to be very Uh, clean and clear inside to have the true reflection yes uh, no. uh, uh, all the other yogas like uh, in the past uh, the other guru the fathers of the yoga hatha yoga how do they relate to sri aurobindo the essence of past yogas is there in shurbindu's yoga what happens with yogas that there is in the core of yoga an aspiration any yoga the very fact of yoga implies that there is faith that there is something with which you can unite otherwise there is no yoga if i say that i don't know whether divine exists or not then obviously there is no question of yoga it is just a mental seeking there is a difference between mental seeking and yoga yoga implies by its nature that there is a faith in something which exceeds us and yoga implies that there is an aspiration to unite with that right these are two things and it also implies that there is something which is greater than us then obviously that can help us pull us much more than what we can do by our own effort now given these three things which are implied and implicit as a seed or a sense in any system of yoga the rest is a question of special development so if i have bhakti for the divine means it implies that there is a divine being and it implies that i want i love him and want to unite with him and it implies that i have to surrender to him but now what form my bhakti may take it may take a vital form it may take a mental form it may take a strong emotional movement like you know it happened in the bhakti movement in 
during Chaitanya's time or it can take a very white uh, Sufi color. All that is the externalities of yoga. Now, what Shurabindra has done is those externalities and the forms it has taken, we need not follow them because our goal is not that. But the essence is there, the core is there. Equally true of knowledge, the yoga of jnana or the path of works. So that form we can change but the essence is there of all the yoga. But because the goal is again different, there is an integral movement. Like in bhakti yoga, you can forget about the jnana part and the will part or in jnana yoga you can even stifle the emotions, it doesn't matter. But in Shurabindad Yoga, there is an integral movement. So the head, the heart and the will all have to move in unison towards the Divine. Thirdly, because it is not just a yoga of uniting with the Divine, but to become an instrument and channel of the Divine, so our mind, heart, body have to be prepared to receive the Divine in the lower members. So these things are not there in the past yogas. So these are some of the commonalities and the differences. There is a very, I mean, Shobinda has written about bhakti in such strong and beautiful words, but the form is different. Um, can each one of you give one example of the different forms of yoga that you have taught? Why five? <laughs> Why not one, two? <laughs> top five. Top five. Top four. Maybe there aren't five. Maybe there are just three. <laughs> Concentrate in the heart. Number one, concentrate, 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 concentrate till you don't have to concentrate and your whole consciousness is fixed in the heart. Concentrate on the mother's presence. Call her name in whatever way it comes to you. Ma, 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 mother, mother, mother. Call. Call like a little baby. Get rid of all this thinky, will it work, won't it work, just call like a baby. Add love to it. Number three, read Shirobindo and the mother every day a little at a fixed time. Take it at least as important as your life if not more important. If you forget your bath, it's okay, but do read Madhya <laughs> It's good to probably sometimes write a little page. Talk to her. Every time you face a difficulty, every time there is a problem, if nothing else, you just had a walk, the day was good, talk to her or write to her, like every day, kind of letter, or in a form of a diary, so that there is an active communication of the whole consciousness with her. Offer more and more all that goes on inside, before the start of an activity, at the end of the activity, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to sleep, sleep in a lap, 
when you wake up remember her snatch out few moments every day fix a time when they they are meant for interiorization preferably at fixed times of the day when one should sit set a time apart and try to go within preferably in the heart but can be done also in the head wherever the consciousness is naturally drawn trust her more than you trust yourself trust her more than you trust anybody in the world trust her more than you have trusted anyone or will ever trust anyone in this world or any other depend on her for everything 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 from the most material to the highest spiritual leave it to her she knows what to give when to give how to give to give or not to give love her reverse the responsibility you wanted the easy way i'll say you go through what has happened in the last 3 and 1/2 days go through everything you've heard thought about see what has touched you deeply see what you feel called to do make your own list but the principle of what he says is independent of whatever list you make all i can add to that is make time make time which is a fixed part of your routine in which you do whatever you feel called to do if you can set time once in the morning once in the evening all the better but at least once in the day keep some time aside mother recommended rather than having one long meditation of an hour one and a half hours as some people actually do she said many brief contacts with the divine presence is more helpful than one long contact So if you are able to do that an ideal schedule of practice would be sometime in in the morning by whatever means get in contact with the divine presence sometime in the evening do the same and many times in between during the day just reconnect however briefly however partially even if it's just 10 seconds whenever you have a bathroom break tea break uh interview break or work break anything happens where you have a gap pause reconnect the idea is to put yourself in touch with the divine consciousness in whichever part by whatever means for whatever duration as frequently as possible the second full question to that uh, raising a child in the western culture here any suggestion any light that you can share on how one should introduce spirituality to children uh, in today's society or any thoughts you can share generally or for your family generally the responses would be different yes ma'am yeah. okay you know generally the reason why i asked that it has to do with the elements of the traditional culture in which you've grown up 
because the Indian culture is fundamentally a spiritual culture. So there are many cultural forms which have been developed, which are extremely valuable. I was quite amazed to watch the last two nights, and all of you have seen this phenomenon happening. When everybody is sleepy, uh, as Alok goes down to sit, he is surrounded by this young crowd that says, sit down and tell us a few stories. And he's telling them the stories from the Puranas, many of them mythological, as they are called in uh, English. Which means what? When you say mythology, oh, it's one of those strange stories which doesn't make sense, it belongs to some past, no relevance for modern life. But when you say Puranic stories, it's not mythology. It's a mix of history, symbolism and deep meaning through stories. And I'm amazed to see how this young group uh, brought up in a very different environment. When they listen to these stories, the joy with which they soak in. And that's because it's something deeply innate and these stories have a profound influence on the whole mindset and uh, formation of character. So make use of some of these traditional forms which are part of our culture and make sure they are transmitted. Don't withhold them. But for that you must yourself be practicing some of these values. To take it to a more general level, depending on your child's maturity and level of development, at the earliest stage, expose them to the familiarity of the spiritual presence. When you sit for meditation, let them come and sit next to you, play if they want, but just tell them, here I am concentrating on God, be with me for a while and feel God, share with me doesn't mean much to them in mental terms, but they feel the presence in the heart and they value and cherish it. it. It's so different. They know it as special. As they grow older, you might start speaking a few words of what things are, where they are, that there's a presence within, that they can call for help, and these are the principles, principles of karma, principles of you know, things we have been discussing, to the extent and in the vocabulary that is relevant to them. As they grow older, it can deepen with their own reading, starting with some introductory books, etc. I know, for example, that at a quite an early age, I had read a lot of things relating to both spiritual and occult traditions. And I know how much difference it made to my world's outlook. And how different it made me from the other children in the same school, though they were all growing up in the ashram. I had a very clear perception of the uh, whole system of the subtle body, kundalini, chakras, uh, all these things from a lot of theosophical literature at the age of 10 or 11. And I understood things, I saw things from that perspective even in ordinary physical activities or physical training. I may not have practiced anything but I understood things from a deeper perspective and it changed my worldview. So if you can and to the extent the child is naturally responsive and there are temperaments which might not be too interested. You can't force it. But you follow and support the child. It's like offering fertilizer to the, to the seed and the plant and allowing it to take what it can from that source. That's the grandparents' job. You know, the grandparents have an advantage. HP, grandparents have an advantage. Parents are always anxious whether they are doing right to their children. They always overdo or underdo. Grandparents know it doesn't matter. They have been through it once. <laughs> so far that's 
So with that base of with the base of detachment, you do a far better job. Children need both. They need the push of the parents as well as the indulgence of the grandparents. And it's part of the design of nature that there are different relationships. <laughs> we have a problem if you don't address it too much. <laughs> Very simply, any technique, not just mantra chanting, any technique, and this would be classed as a technique, any technique is useful to the extent that it works for you. If it works for you, good. If it doesn't work for you, use something else. But if it works for you, then in this yoga, in the integral yoga, the recommended mantra is the name of Shurabindu or the mother. Or Om. But I personally tend to recommend concentration on the presence directly without need for words. When in that concentration a word spontaneously emerges as an expression of your relationship or love, or contact, that becomes the spontaneous mantra of that moment. But otherwise, to take this idea that I'm going to repeat X mantra 100 times or 20 times or for so many minutes, is really distracting your attention from the direct contact. To put it another way, suppose you're using a mantra and you repeat it 100 times. You have to count. Where's the attention of your mind? on the number, not on the mantra, not on the meaning, not on the thing you are aiming at using the mantra. If you discarded all that and aimed directly at the thing you want, concentrate on that, you'll get to it in the equivalent of 10 counts of the mantra rather than the 100 which would still not get you there. So that's the point Sri makes in the integral yoga and its practice. Techniques are useful to the extent that they help, but the recommended Process is a direct focus of concentration with faith on the thing which you aim at and a direct shift of consciousness towards that. Just in line with that, with the slokas, we talk about mantras, but slokas and, and getting the, the children to learn the slokas and the pronunciations and so on. Yes. How, how critical, how Invaluable. Uh, observe, all of you can see how the one thing you never forget from your school days is the nursery rhymes you learnt in childhood. Everybody knows Jack and Jill and whatever it was. They are meaningless, stupid. Some of them are political satire, which somehow got into this uh, children's education, and I don't know how. Three Men in a Tub was a political satire on three politicians in, in England. Why is it being taught to children? It's stupid. But it sticks in you, it stays with you, and it's a part of your consciousness. I found recently while doing nothing in particular, out of the blue, from the subconscious, a particular chant popped up, which I had learned in childhood in kindergarten, which is quite meaningless. And why it came, what connection it had, I don't know. But it's there and it pops up. If instead you gave them meaningful chants, and it changes your whole life, because when you need it in life, that thing comes up and you suddenly realize what it truly means. So, even if it is in the English language, 
पिक वर्सेस पोएट्री और फ्रेजेस वर्ड सेंटेंसेस व्हिच हैव डीप स्पिरिचुअल सिग्निफिकेंस और आर आर गाइडेंस फॉर लाइफ दिस अ ब्यूटीफुल सेंटेंस फ्रॉम द मदर यू विल फाइंड दिस लिटिल बुक सीड्स ऑफ लाइट या दिस सेंटेंस दे if you can always smile at life life is always will always smile back at you now this is something so simple and the child at that age may may not fully appreciate the meaning of it but later when he hits problems in life the thing will pop up and it will be so meaningful so please use all opportunities if you have to teach them something use these i know when i was 12 i had learned the bhagavad gita and long passages from that isha upanishad i had learned today i'm studying the isha upanishad and the verses come out and suddenly they have a different meaning so many years later but still it's it's a gift which is there implanted and of course the proper pronunciation is extremely important especially when teaching the sanskrit language if you can get them the proper pronunciation it's the only language in the world where the structure of the alphabet matches the structure of the sound which matches the structure of the throat no other language has this now if you can teach a child to pronounce correctly and uh enunciate uh, rightly the whole throat passage opens out to its maximum flexibility practically then if you have trained in the proper sanskrit pronunciation you can shift your accent and speak any language in the precise intonation and accent of that language it gives tremendous flexibility there and then of course for the mantras the vibrational quality of the sound is fully operational when you pronounce it properly uh, in uh, context of the last two questions uh, is the ashram school in any way structured or geared to help anara children to go for like two months summer <laughs> no <laughs> really like to explore the opportunity the ashram schools program is a is a long term program i'll share a story with you so just a summer program mother wanted the children to acquire something she was creating a new world okay a new consciousness she wanted them to grow up in something totally unconnected with existing values of the world so there was an isolation of the ashram community isolation of the school and so that the children don't feel it missing cinema is being shown every weekend now that isolation is gone because of tv but and that's something we must discuss but during that period the isolation was there and we had vacations which mother didn't want they were not part of the original system all year round you had school somehow because of certain events the vacations were introduced for one and a half months in the year and some children began to go back home to their parents during the vacations because the parents insisted and mother couldn't refuse and then mother commented every time they go out and come back all the work that i have done on them for a whole year is washed out and then the teacher to whom she spoke was so surprised he said and she says i have to begin all over again from scratch and the teacher said mother why do you do it she said you don't know the limits of my patience <laughs> it's a long term program there and so there are no short term things like that but you can see if the society has some youth camps and things like that society does 
Auroville has, the Sri Aurobindo Society also has. Society has some youth camps in, uh, I think it is in winter and it's a 10 day camp. Contact and is Vladimir teaching Sanskrit at Sarvadeep Bhavan? I think so. Um, Sanskrit, I'm not sure, but I think uh, he does take classes on the Vedas. He does some Upanishadic and Vedic studies in this IPI in Pondicherry and some things in Auroville. I don't know the full program. What Mother or Sri Aurobindo has to say, is there a life on the other planet? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you two replies. One which comes not from something they have stated about life, but which comes from the whole philosophy. When Sri says, mind is involved in life, life is involved in matter. Okay? Wherever there is matter in the whole universe, life is pushing out. Remember, infinity is compressed in that finite piece. It's going to push out. And therefore, it's going to pop up everywhere in the universe without exception life. And then mind will pop out of life everywhere in the universe without exception. Okay? The only difference is what forms, to what extent it is evolved, and how much is in the subtle world, how much in the physical world. These are the only variations. So if you go even on Mars, on Venus, doesn't matter what the temperature is and the atmosphere, there's life. It might be physical, it might be subtle. At least there will be subtle forms. Okay, but the physical forms also might be there. They may be in forms you may not always recognize. They may still be at the level of bacteria. They may be full-grown plants and animals, but in very different colors and shapes, different kinds of tissue, whatever it is. There can even be life forms which are subtle physical. And this is existing even in the physical world, in our, in our earth. And there are certain situations of atmosphere in which one can see them or sense them. And then, uh, particularly in uh, twilight, where there's high electricity in the air, stormy uh, atmosphere, that's also the time when you can see ghosts more easily, because the gap between the physical and subtle physical is, uh, so to say, bridged by the supporting ionization in the air. And you're able to see and sense those things. I had a friend who had a certain opening, and one day at home he found his hand as he placed it on his table it fell on something soft and with eyes open he's seeing nothing but the hand can feel something soft and it was like a little creature and he picked it up and it was squirming and he threw it against the wall and there was a splat sound but he could still see nothing and it's just on that borderline so uh, just from the philosophy just from the philosophy, there's life everywhere in the universe. Okay? Even on the sun, there will be beings in the subtle worlds, subtle level, but on the sun, who will be presiding over the sun's workings. Just as here we have nature spirits who preside over the seed germination, the flowering, fruiting, and all plant activities. So in the sun there will be. Separate from this is what Mother spoke of specifically about life on other planets. She said that there is life on other planets and that uh, there are all kinds of life forms. Specifically about the form of that, she said the human shape, humanoid shape, 
is the end result of millions of years of experimentation and evolution by nature. And it approaches a kind of a perfection of what nature has in mind. And therefore, everywhere in the universe where life emerges up to mind, it will tend to have a humanoid form. I read also that uh, Mother was asked that question about uh, the other worlds. And she said they are typal worlds. And if those beings want to evolve, they will have to take birds on birds. Yes, these are when she's speaking of subtle worlds versus the physical world. From the subtle world, beings have to take birth in the physical world for evolution. Uh, there's one more thing though. She said something special about the earth. She said of the whole universe, earth represents a special concentration of the possibilities in the whole universe. And the psychic principle particularly is being developed specially here. And just as in, on earth today, India represents a special concentration of the problems of the world and the challenges, so the earth represents a special concentration of the problems and challenges of universal evolution. And the ashram represents the special concentration of the problems and challenges of India in the world. <laughs> you know it, of course. <laughs> and eat sadak. What relationship? How that applies to people that don't live in ashrams like atmosphere? Do you want to take it? I'll add it. You're talking of vital relationships in the ashram. In the world. In yoga. In yoga. And how it applies to people living outside the ashram context. Any vital relationship means a certain interchange of consciousness. And this interchange, obviously if, usually it means the passage of each other's difficulties, nice gifts to each other which are not very helpful from the yoga point of view. So vital interchanges always bring thrill in the beginning, disillusionment in the middle and pain towards the end. <laughs> but the human vital seeks it again. So it goes on through this series Till one day it realizes that I had enough of this stupidity in my life and I am done with it. Because it doesn't uh, happen that, you know, simply by knowing its principle it goes away. Human nature is very complex and it goes, usually most of us learn through experience, though we are very poor learners, but if we can offer it to mother and open ourselves transparently to her without hiding anything, 
say if there is a vital attachment or a sentimental relationship or even a frank gross vital interchange we should not hide it from the divine that's one thing which is dangerous tell the divine this is my problem this is what is happening inside put a will to get rid of it so first you know i i'll tell you a story you know from of course from ramayana but none of them knows it so don't worry it's as new to any everybody you know vibhishna is a character in ravana's brother he is a younger brother and he has you know helped in the war so after the war is over he comes with rama to his kingdom and this fellow is a rakshasa so he is you know he is prone to eating meat and in ayodhya where rama resides meat is banned no mcdonald no kentucky nothing so what to do all the monkeys are very wary of this man that this fellow you know he likes to eat meat and we are the only guys he will catch us and eat so they tell rama don't do this mistake as you reach the borders of ayodhya tell him bye bye fine rama says why are you bothered i have called him i'll take care but monkeys are suspicious you know so they follow him one day the fellow feels like eating non veg food <laughs> so he goes on the outskirts of the city and when he sees nobody is around he picks up a rabbit and quickly eats it <clears throat> and the monkeys come back and report to rama to so rama tells them has any monkey been less in number <laughs> so, <laughs> rama says keep quiet go back do your job monkeys know now that you know he is up to some trick so after two months he again feels like eating again he goes sees nobody is around picks up a rabbit but as he eats it he pukes he develops a kind of indigestion but he can't go and tell any doctor that i have eaten rabbit you know <laughs> so he he suffers the whole process again monkeys report to rama rama says keep quiet no monkey is reduced i know i have got the counting done don't worry go back <laughs> third time the moment he feels like eating a rabbit one side he is feeling other side he is feeling pukish so first our nature feels like having vital interchange but if we offer it to the divine we have the interchange and something in us also feels the disgust of the whole process it begins to feel that it's not worth it because we become addicted to the greater delight of the divine presence and we are able to see that this interchange veils it it's a learning by experience and one suffers inside that look i mean it's see it's not a moral principle rigidly applied by a kind of mental rule one cuts off from the greater delight next time there is an urge but there is also that spontaneous disgust and the third time you multiply third by 10 times you know like it goes away from nature so vital interchange in principle no doubt about it is dangerous sometimes it can be very dangerous especially if the interchange with with a human being who is not only not open to yoga but contrary to the spirit of yoga so the practical and the safe rule what is called as a middle path is 
people who go through vital experiences, they go through with people generally who are also turned towards this light, so that to an extent there is a fundamental harmony. Of course, this question has many levels and many shades. In principle, vital interchange is not a very good thing or conducive to the yogic process because the whole consciousness is to turn towards the divine even for its delight or joy of relationship and not towards another human being. Now when it turns towards another human being, one cuts off from the universal delight that is constantly seeping into and one puts one more bar between oneself and the delight that is there in the creation. So instead of having all our relationship and expectations from the divine, we begin to say, if this person smiles at me, I'll be happy. If this person appreciates me, I'll be happy. One doesn't say it in so many words, but you know, it applies to that. And therefore, slowly, one begins to lose that vast delight which is so natural. Like, you know, in children, children don't know anything about vital interchange and relationship and they are spontaneously happy. But when they grow up, they start expecting, they get into a kind of relationship. But having said that, almost all human beings, most of us, pass through experiences and it's okay. Don't develop guilt and start, you know, feeling bad about things. Offer it to mother. This is the path. If one is sincere and one is offering, if one is really aspiring for something beautiful, then things will change inside as well as in the circumstances of life. This is a broad principle. Same thing you. applies in the ashram also. Yes. I want to ask you, uh, do you mean vital interchange generally or do you mean sexual relations? Sexual relations, because there's different from just personal relations. Okay, because there's a big difference. Vital interchange can have other connotations. When you walk in a crowd, there's a vital interchange. Uh, the whole thing rests, just speaking of vital interchange generally, the whole thing rests on the idea that our goal is to purify our nature. Purification of mind involves a discipline of thoughts. Purification of the vital involves a discipline of vital impulses of all kinds. Desire, greed, anger, hatred, etc. Okay, when there is an exchange of vital energies, there is an infection of someone else's vital tendencies in yours, which can undo the purificatory process that you're going through. So, generally, the contact of exchange of energies with any body is avoided for that purpose. So, in the ashram community, for example, there was a degree of isolation precisely in order to prevent such things. Uh, which is very different from the issue of celibacy. This is a separate thing in itself, to maintain a certain purity. Now, when you go into a crowded space, just after a meditation, in the public, you can feel a kind of a uh, coming down of your vibes. You lose, you tend to lose something or you gain something which is unpleasant. Even before you enter the crowd, you will feel, yuck, I don't want to go into this space now, I'd rather remain alone. And you can feel that difference. And that's part of the vital interchange issue. So if you have developed a certain sensitivity, you'll understand the rationale of maintaining a certain clarity or isolation to the extent that you're not able to prevent that kind of interchange. When it comes to sexual relations, there's a very different issue involved for the ashram and generally in the yoga and then for the rest. For a normal person, it doesn't matter. It's part of life, no big deal. When it comes to the practice of the yoga, 
then the character of experience that the sexual relation implies is of the same grade of vibration of consciousness as raw anger. In consciousness terms, purely vibrational terms, the mother observes it is the same thing as being in anger and in being in sexual excitement, it's the same grade. The difference is there is excitement here, there is a different kind of uh, high there. But the vibrational quality is the same. It's both of them are drives which you cannot resist. Intense passion that pushes you to make you do stupid things which you would not rationally do. Okay? Both are instincts Im implanted by nature, though the sexual instinct may be stronger because it's procreative. So, as part of the purification of the vital, this grade of vibration has to be dissolved. The vital itself should be able to be free of any compulsion of any kind so that it can be absolutely plastic and only responsive to the direct spiritual influence. And therefore, the sexual relation or indulgence in it begins to be a retardation of purification of the vital, which in the initial phase of the yoga may not be so important. You start with that part of your consciousness which is most open and as that purifies, the space of purification gradually extends to include all those parts. And as Alok described, gradually over time, the vital gets purified automatically and you can of course assist the process and the intensity of the urge automatically diminishes until at some point it will cease to be or if it is there it will be so negligible you can choose to accept or refuse. So it's not a big deal. It's not a cause for guilt, it's not a cause for problem, it's not bad nor good. It's an issue, it's part of human nature's tendencies which gradually automatically diminishes and vanishes. Okay? But if you bring into it a context where you are taught, and of course that's the uh, psychology here, that a person is more healthy if he has sex so many times a week, you have to throw out those ideas. It has nothing to do with health. On the contrary, containing and developing, intensifying your energies, directing them to creative activities is in itself a great advantage. So there is a clear correlation between the creative power and the sexual energy. Shirobindo refers to this how most creative people, artists, musicians who have high levels of creativity have also high sex drives because it is the same energy which is transmuted and operated in the mental sphere which otherwise would be lost through a physical process. So containing and redirecting that energy to a higher creative dimension is useful even in an ordinary life. Now in the ashram the framework was different. It's not that you are waiting until that impulse vanishes, until then you are in a framework where it is acceptable. In the ashram, when the ashram was started, it was meant to be a place for concentrated sadhana. Where it was assumed that you were ready for that concentrated sadhana before you came and there was a filtration process where Sri and the mother selected those who were ready. And there were cases where people were eager to come and they were told, no, you have to wait some more time. And when they saw the person is ready, then they came. At which point they are already ready and committed to a life where all energies will be dedicated to the transformation. There is already a degree of purification where that is not a big deal. And then they can commit themselves to a life of celibacy. So in the context of the integral yoga, celibacy is not critical. Okay, but in the context of the ashram, 
it was essential for the purpose for which ashram was formed. Subsequently, there were other people who came, families who came, and there was a dilution of the atmosphere. The families had their own relationships, and then children grew up, they had their own issues as uh, they became teenagers, and mother handled it. But they were not, children were not expected to be sadhaks. Even after they joined the ashram, just because they had grown up, they had grown up as mother's children, not all of them were consciously choosing to take a path of concentrated sadhana. And mother permitted or indulged in their issues. So we look at three situations, normal life, no big deal. Practicing the yoga, but not in the ashram context, it's part of a process which will be dealt with. You don't have to worry about it too much. If you feel inclined, you can assist the process of purification of the vital to speed it up, no problem. In the ashram context, celibacy was essential, at least for the core group involved in intense sadhana. Two, three very practical things I'll tell you. One is, um, don't make it a center of conflict, which many people end up doing. Second, these are words of mother. Second thing is that, uh, do a lot of physical activity. This is one of the direct ways to handle this instinct. Third is, remain busy, don't let boredom rise up in nature. The sexual instinct rises very strong when there is boredom, when people have nothing to do and they are just sitting and, you know, idling time. And of course, one should be very careful of the company one keeps in general when one is doing yoga. And just as there is a value of satsang, there is a value of dussang also. You know, when one is in the company of people who are full of these uh, impulses and, you know, instincts, doubts, confusion, then one actually opens oneself to contamination. So that's one reason why there is a, you know, importance of the group life and a group life which is open and dedicated to a greater ideal. And lot of physical education, very helpful. In ashram, that is one way that it works very well. And there is a lot of stress on physical education. Yes, Kobin? I think one of the best things that happened for us in the New York study circle uh, was when both of you were there at the same time and you gave us some very, very powerful uh, guidance on what a study circle should be like. Uh, as guidelines, not as states. In the same way, tomorrow we have a study circle. You take some time out uh, to tell us what homes should be like according to you. Govind, I am frankly a little hesitant. I am being very <laughs> frank with you. Because OM is an event of US and the sadhaks of the US. And it is they who have to feel what it should be like. But as a sadhak of the US, I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask me in one word, I can tell you it, it should be centered around the mother and Shirobindo. If you ask me, but I still feel, yeah, 
but i still feel i mean that center should be there you know whatever else is there form it takes if the center is right everything will be fine but uh, if you ask me personally i think it's an event of the us and all the us sadhaks and centers it's a very important event i personally feel it has a personality of its own and everything should be done to make it a harmonious and beautiful thing and it is a sacred event it is a yagna and it should be done in that spirit and we have very beautiful people narad is there dakshina is there asmuk bhai julian wendy are already here there are very very beautiful people who have not come here devashish is there in los angeles there are others also and i am sure everybody together uh, it's a beautiful event and it should only it should be there i personally feel it should be there and uh, you know and centered around her but it's an event of the us it should be aspiration of the land is important what form and shape it will take it's the collective consciousness study circles yes that's a different thing because study circles are not related to any particular country or anything so we could yes what you do in the centers and study circles separately you do when you come together in deep net yes yes so there i want to ask um, why did shri arbindo write the future poetry in the context of having seen because of heard for many 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 years that savitri is the word is it's in a way the most it can be used as a path for it's a path for for the yoga so given the significance of savitri in all of shivanand's works what is the why why was the future poetry i i last looked at it like 15 years ago and i didn't understand anything from it <laughs> i'm just curious to know what what was when shivanand wrote the arya he said that don't know the exact numbers but he said something like that he wrote for 7 years by the way had he gone on writing for 70 years 10 times as much he would still have covered hardly 1/10th of the knowledge that he had received okay why he chose certain things over others because of a certain turn of temperament as he described by temperament he was both a poet and a politician so expressing in that line the vision of the future development of humanity was an aspect of his special expression had he been a musician he would have perhaps written about the future music also but he gave enough hints in any case of in the overall scheme of his writings and perhaps the future science had he been a scientist but being a poet naturally he gave that a special place and a special value and he expressed himself in a special way through poetry just as mother expressed herself through music in the same way what mother and shirvinda says about the existence of soul in the plane within the earth or below the sky levels because we heard lot of things that soul still do its brahma within around us at all times बोलो सर होल बुक ऑन डेथ एंड टाइम आई 
in brief, in brief, the soul does not wander. The soul retires to its resting place. What may hang around for a while is something of the vital body or the mental body, which disintegrates quite rapidly. It is usually the prana, the bhuta, the preta, rather than the soul. You know? yeah, they are beings of the vital world who may be wandering around, but not the soul of the person who has passed on. We were actually having discussion about it in the uh, outside sessions and I think in the four respects of the mother, this part did come up. Service to humanity is one of the ways that helps us to forget our own petty self because we extend ourselves beyond into others. But there is a greater service. More than service to humanity, service to the divine. So when you take service to the divine, then the context can change completely. You may be in your office situation and yet you can serve the divine. So very often when we talk of service to humanity, we think of philanthropy and humanitarian services, like we go to a temple, feed the poor, etc., etc. These activities have many sides to it. To an extent, in a certain stage, they may be helpful because, you know, they make us come out of a completely a very, you know, crude state of egoism where we are shut into ourselves. But they have a flip side, both on the side of the recipient and on the side of the giver. To the giver, if indulged too long, it can itself lead to another kind of egoism of, you know, doing service. And on the side of the receiver, it can make them dependent on a certain kind of human aid, which may not always be the best of things. It's all right in certain situations and for certain people, but as I said, it, it may not always be the best of things. Um, so one has to see how far it is really helping. Uh, in yoga, this service or this urge to serve is replaced by the service to the divine. What form it will take, it will depend on situation, the aspiration, the place where you are, the person, his past formation, so many ways it can take. But the aspiration is not to serve the human, but to serve the divine. If you want a compromise situation, then to serve the divine in the human. Nar ki seva se Narayan ki seva, ya kehen nar ke andar Narayan ki seva. Because human beings have two parts, one is their physical, vital, mental constitution and the human beings have another part which is the divine aspect in them. When we serve the physical, vital, mental formation, we are serving the egos of people. And it may help, it may not help. But when we serve their divine essence inside, then we are helping the evolutionary process. So, if anything which can help awaken human you know, it's easy to give food, for instance, to people who are, you know, um, 
hungry or to give free medicines to those who are or free consultation to those who need and who are deprived but it's far more difficult but far more precious to awaken to something which can free them of the need of medicines for instance and if one can do that that is the best service but seva definitely service to the divine is not only a recognized form but shrivinda has spoken a lot of it in the synthesis has spoken of it but not the way it is understood in tradition and that is not practiced in the ashram because as i said for the following reasons let me rephrase that question what i asked about the soul after the death the soul goes and it will take a rebirth does it come in a human form or other form once a human being always a human being that is the general law generally speaking so because the line of is of evolution but what happens is that a small part of the vital or something may with a very strong animal propensities may after death drop off antagon to an animal to exhaust certain tendencies but as far as the psychic is concerned if one has one see the very fact of the psychic supporting an individual formation means it is developed enough so this developed psychic consciousness cannot go back and be supported by an animal form so it's not a question of moral right or wrong or punishment and reward it's an impossibility it won't fit in with it because first of all animals most animals don't have an individual psychic ex- exceptions apart they have a group soul because the individual animal form is not able to support an individual soul essence like that so once one has taken a human form then usually it will be a human form there are exceptions always no general rule can be made because the line of evolution tends upward now what that form will be it can be very very strange it's not that you know people when they talk about past life they always like to see themselves as great people outwardly that may not be and it's not a question of reward and punishment it's an evolution through learning so if in a particular life one had one kind of experience in another life one may have a very different kind of experience for one's growth one may be a great uh, musician in one life and in the next life one may like to be you know uh, doing a job which may be considered as menial because that's what is required for one's growth so i'll share an interesting story it happened in the ashram and uh, maybe alok knows the name of the man one of the old sadhaks used to say after i die next life i will come as a black dog and stand in front of the ashram gate and bark at all the bad people and shoo them away and he used to say this repeatedly soon after he died we found a black dog coming to the ashram gate <laughs> and very interestingly it would bark at all uh, beggars passing by or anybody who did not come with devotion he was just curious and or strange people it would bark and shoo them away and it would come and play with the children of the school and once the children went for a picnic somewhere and it as they cycled along he followed them all the way came back with them and he would sleep in the school ashram school courtyard 
and then morning he would be back in his duty at the ashram gate. And for a couple of years at least. Now in this case, it's not that the soul of that sadhak has gone and become a dog. The soul has gone on, but this particular formation that he had in his mental or vital being, that kind of stayed and then attached itself to a receptacle in affinity to that, in, uh, that instinct. And the dog was pulled to express this nudge. That's then, all that is. Then that poor dog remains poor dog when he does he graduate. The dog was always dog. <laughs> the human being has gone on. I know, but that dog when he dies. I think he did some good deeds. <laughs> I'm sure. You see, a dog... <laughs> he would have evolved to a human being. A dog associates itself with human beings when there is already a certain readiness to the human life. And you will find in certain animals there is a degree of awareness which is so similar to a human being. The only difference is they can't speak. That's when you see a sign that they are ready for a human life and the next time they might attempt it. There's a nice story from Mother about uh, the child who asked her, what will Beethoven come back as? And Mother said, perhaps a shoemaker is just approaching the problem from another angle. <laughs> yes? Oh, um, well, you kind of said, you know, once you're a human, you don't de-evolve. So the next step would be enlightenment. Once you are what? Human. The next step for that human. Eventually. Not stuck in the cycle. Quite a number of human, 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 human before that. Most people love to remain human. Even now, you know, after all these lecturings, we love to remain human. So, <laughs> till we get rid, sick of this human and really seek something greater than human, we come from one human to another human form. Hopefully a little better. <laughs> and, uh, there's only an issue, an issue I have with the word enlightenment. That's a word which is undefined. And that's part of the huge confusion in the New Age community. Everybody talks of getting enlightened or not getting enlightened. There are people who say, I am enlightened. They could be, but they are not self-realized. Self-realization is defined. Enlightenment is not defined. You could call anything enlightenment. I had a flash of light while meditating. I am enlightened. <laughs> I received a light in the vital. I am enlightened. I received a light in the mind from the higher mind. I am enlightened. I received a light from the intuitive mind. I am enlightened. It was a flash of an event. It passed, but I am still enlightened. It could be in any of these things. But and it's not self-realization. Others believe that I am enlightened, therefore I am enlightened. <laughs> So unfortunately in the New Age community there is a huge confusion on this issue and I would just leave this as an idea for you, be wary of that term. Well actually the, part of the question is because you know, the human population is the most it's ever been. So, you know, there is a reason for that, there are many explanations. One is very simply that the number of souls is not fixed. There are new souls always emerging from the origin. Second is that not all souls are at the same time in births. A large number of them are in a state of rest, taking birth when they are ready. And maybe this is a time which is so special in an evolutionary term that all of them want to come crowding down to get a chance at the, uh, the growth that they could get here. Yes, yes. And then remember, there are souls not just on Earth. There are many millions, billions of planets all around. 
So, yeah. <laughs> they want to have experience of that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any zero on the use of stem cells? Of stem cells? Yes. Good. working on the body to repair it. What do you mean by recycled? <laughs> From the oneness, infinite potential flows out. And some of these enter into manifestation as a focal point of evolving consciousness. And in the timelessness, there is an infinity of it entering into the realm of time. At various points in time, they can enter. And so you will experience new souls entering the journey of life, starting from animal birth upwards, all the way to human births. There will be new souls. There will be new souls always. We read in the morning the apocalyptic vision. <laughs> okay. The earth is capable of supporting up to double the present population. Double the present population. If we use the resources wisely. Sometimes the crisis is what makes us review our use of resources. Hopefully in the next few years we will improve. There is also a lot of unequal distribution of resources. A lot of things are there which... Yes, you were saying something. Right behind. Ah. Yes, sir. theory that in a marriage for the marriage to be successful one of you has to be a doormat to the other <laughs> no I disagree but hello. I think I am quite experienced about this <laughs> we talk about it with certain authenticity <laughs> marriage side <laughs> not a bureau or something but it's a very good thing, it's if both partners are turned towards the same path, first of all, take it as a very special act of grace and be grateful for it because it's a rarity and if it is there, as I see in some of the couples here, 
I know of people whose lives have been ruined simply because they pulled in different directions. So first it's a grace, be grateful. Do everything that would strengthen your union in the core. Practically, find a time when both of you, if this applies to anyone who may have a similar question, both of you read together something from Mother and Shirobindo. Engage yourself in a common activity which will be an activity to serve them in the true consciousness. Try to do nothing definitely which would hinder the other partner. In return the other partner should respect the pace of the other person and not try to impose his own pace and law of progress on the other one. Because that becomes a big strain. Very important to remember that though both are on the same path, yet they have their own law of being, their own law of approach. X may like to read Shurabindu and the mother, Y, his partner or her partner may not like to do so, but may have a lot of love for them in the heart. It's fine. X should not force Y to read forcibly because each has one's own way. Most of all, and this is irrelevant to the whole issue, but very relevant, don't drag parents in your discussions. <laughs> don't try to convert anyone. Just be happy on the path. It's a very beautiful path, it's very delightful, it's a grace, be grateful, be happy, enjoy the path, don't get into a stand state, I must reach now and you must reach now, how far you are. <laughs> we really don't know, honestly we don't know. There are instances I have known in life, I have some white hairs I can say now, and I'm sure there are many people who would testify who looked as if they are very advanced on the path and their wives were very silent sufferers of the man's progress. But who knows in the divine's eyes who has progressed more? The first thing that yoga teaches is appearances are deceptive. It may appear that X is progressing very fast, simply because to all appearances it looks like that. But in the view of the divine it may be a totally different picture altogether. And there are instances like that and help each other to grow. It's a great joy. Don't bind each other as if you own or possess anyone. Very difficult, very important. Mother has spoken of how Two people, how men become slave to women and women become slave to men, they must be free beings even in their togetherness. It's one thing that both are incomplete and they have no choice but to unite. It's quite another that they are free and complete with the divine in themselves and yet they come together for a special work. It is the latter which is the secret of a yogic union and not the former. When you observe your differences, you will find all the differences come from differences of nature. 
and your natures are all different fundamentally all your unity comes from your essence in the spirit in your aspiration in your upward turn to the mother okay make that the basis of your oneness and for everything else let go adapt adjust learn but let go nothing else is more important than this wherever you have differences abstract the difference from the form to its essence and you'll find commonality in the essence and then find ways to resolve form differences a lot of problems will go away just by making this clarity of priorities then many things you'll say issues come because you say that is too important you can't do that and when you separate from the form doesn't matter what form you follow it's fine on and a lot of things of, just vanish on line of uh, hp i'll tell you a little story <laughs> a man and a woman lived together and they were always happy so someone asked them what is the secret so the man said very simple all the major decisions of the house i decide and all the minor decisions my wife decides so he said what are these minor and major decisions he said minor decisions like what house we will move in what fridge we will buy what tv what color of tiles all these things my wife decides says then what do you decide what are the major decisions he says i decide america's nuclear policy <laughs> iran crisis what should be done what should not be done i take those decisions and she doesn't interfere please get the hint it's not just a joke Business myself, <laughs> just switch off. 
I have seen business families for now four generations who are in the, I don't know if I can say concentrated practice of yoga, but certainly in the turn of devotion towards the yogic life. That is the areas. But that's a family already, so that's already integrated. But I've not seen different people from different families coming together and staying together in this way. That's rare. Or does Sri prescribe coming together as in smaller cells? Uh, there are people who have this kind of aspiration. I'm not sure whether they have... There is actually collectivity like that. It will be very nice if it can happen. One person who has an aspiration like that is sitting in the front row. Sartaj can... There are people like that who have this aspiration to come together in the business world with a higher purpose. But actually such a group has materialized, but I am very... It's very interesting that in this group suddenly, you know, you have expressed this aspiration. He is already doing it. So... If a collectivity like that can come where all the people who are working, the organization, everything is working with a higher goal and higher purpose entirely. That's the future of business. That would be wonderful. <coughs> that would be wonderful. Okay. Good. Go ahead. When you are concentrating on the heart and your thoughts don't stop, do they interfere with your concentration? Yes. How do you stop? In what way do they interfere? Is your mind concentrating on the heart or are you feeling in the heart? No, the mind is trying to concentrate. Okay. Can you shift it so that you feel in the heart rather than think of the heart? Can you feel the difference? Okay. When you do that, you will find there are two parts. There's this part which feels, there's this part which thinks and neither bothers the other. So you try to feel versus Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you feel the love, feel the devotion, feel the aspiration. And how do you keep it? I mean, yeah, you feel it for the You hold the feeling. So how do you hold it? Because eventually the thoughts are going to start penetrating. They won't penetrate. When you hold here, and with concentration on the feeling, then it's like the thoughts are out there somewhere. It doesn't matter. You are here. And at, when you dissociate from the thoughts in this way, then they tend to lose force. They weaken out. Automatically. Okay? Even if they stay there so peripheral, they don't bother you. Do this first. Separate from this, you can also work to train your mind. And there are several ways of training. Uh, one of the easiest ways you can do as a separate practice to stop your thoughts, not focusing in the heart, is slow down your breath, follow your breath, feeling the air as it flows down and out. And with your full attention on the sensation of the air in the passage, in and out and slow and deep. And just doing that a few times, you'll find your thoughts immediately quiet down. You don't need to aim at silence. It's enough if your thoughts become quiet at will. So feel versus think. 
what you just said, because what you told me what you just said, uh, I'm a very mental person, and uh, it's hard to stop my thoughts. Whenever I had the, you know, as the intensity of my feeling grew, love, devotion, etc., in any setting like this, it is very special in this type of setting. As the intensity grew, the thoughts slowly, you know, went off. And I never thought of thoughts bothering me. That was the trick I played. I'm not worried about you know, mental disturbance or thoughts bothering me, but as the feeling grew, the thoughts automatically came down. And it was not, I didn't get silence or anything, but the agitation really went down dramatically. So, because the focus is more here. Okay, last question. Yeah, just a, a different side of this question. Uh, if you're on the, or wanting to aspire to go on the path of yoga, but your spouse isn't, or at this time, at this juncture, is not the right timing for that, but you feel that yours is, how does one balance that? If it does not matter for the spouse, then there's no issue. If it matters, then you need to see on what point it matters. You mean if the man is walking on a path or the woman is walking on the path and the man is not, is that what you mean? Yeah. Correct. Are you referring to a spiritual path or you are referring to a way of life? Spiritual path. If one person is walking and the other is not, don't disturb the other person. For the one who is walking, he should not disturb or force it on the other person. But it can create a difficult situation sometime or the other, depending on how far the person has gone. It's a problem only the divine grace can solve. But if the other has no issues with your walking the path, okay, then you don't have a problem. If there is an issue, you need to see what it is that's bothering. Is it that your spouse does not feels you're not giving enough time? Is it the spouse feels you've become too detached and you're not emotionally involved? Because that may come as part of a certain shift in your own consciousness. So you need to see what it is and then try to find a way to resolve that. It'll depend on the specific issue that pops up as a difference. Otherwise, Practically, if you are in a, if you take to the spiritual path, until it reaches a point of intense concentration, it need not fundamentally change anything in your life, in your routine, except you give some time for something, for your concentration practices. It will make you a better person perhaps, so they should be happier for it.